the question that always just comes up is like, am I normal? Am I normal? Am I, am I okay? And there's so many people in college that I feel like are, are worried that they're not having enough sex and they're alone in that. If you're listening to this and you're not having sex in college, you are not alone. And if you're in college and you're having sex and you're having lots of hookups, you're not alone. And um, the only thing that I think is healthy from like a psychological lens is like whether you feel good about yourself and about your body and pleasure. You're listening to CWC Talks, a podcast from the University of Florida Counseling and Wellness Center. In each episode, we discuss mental health topics related to the experience of being a student and share the struggles and joys of taking care of your mental health while in college. Please note, CWC Talks is not a substitute for counseling and may be sensitive for people who have experienced trauma. All guests' views are their own and do not speak for the CWC, the University of Florida, or the mental health profession as a whole. Hi, I am here today with Dr. Hannah Warshawski, who is a therapist who focuses primarily on sexual concerns. Hannah, welcome. Thank you, Sarah. I'm so excited to be here with you today. I'm so glad you're here. And this is, you know, talking about sex is so important, but also people um, often, I think, have a lot of anxiety about talking about sex. And so, um, I mean, this is what you do for a living. So I'm really excited to learn more about what people share with you and, you know, in terms of the themes and stuff that you see um, behind closed doors, because so often we're not talking about these things openly. Yes. And I think one of the reasons I love actually talking about sex is to get the shame away from sex. Sex is about pleasure. And it's so hard to have pleasure when, when there's shame and when there's anxiety, which we all have. I have, you have, it comes up with everyone around sex at some point, but really behind closed doors in therapy, people are often wondering things about their own sex life that so many other people share. So, I mean, that being said, I, I guess I'm wondering what are some of those common concerns that clients share with you? Yeah. So it does differ a little bit by age and a little bit by um, sex and gender. So People with vulvas, with vaginas, for a younger age group, the number one thing is difficulty with orgasm. So that could be with masturbation or with a partner. And then um, sexual pain is also really common. So um, vaginismus, where the vagina tightens up, um, or other types of sexual pain. And um, as people age, low sexual desire is something that comes up for women, people with vulvas. And for um, younger men, younger people with penises, the thing that really comes up is premature ejaculation. And, you know, and that actually is technically happening in orgasm usually in, with, in less than a minute. So we often define things with standards we see in movies, but in actuality, the definition of dysfunction is, um, is pretty stringent. And um, another thing that comes up, especially as people age, is erectile dysfunction. And we also see that in, in the media. And all of these things are so influenced by our lack of sex education that happens from movies, from pornography, from 
you know, Instagram now that says that sex should be one way. And that has us all wondering, am I normal or what's wrong with me? What is the one way that we're, that we're educated by popular culture that sex is supposed to be? How would you describe that? Yeah. So the, the scene, I feel like, well, maybe I'm dating myself with this one, but it's a scene from Titanic, Titanic. It's passionate. It's fun. You know, it's just, it's steamy and it's a man and a woman who are cisgender, heterosexual. They like kiss, make out. And there's like hints that there is intercourse, which means penis in the vagina. And like, there's an orgasm and they often both orgasm at exactly the same time with like no communication of, Hey, does this feel good? This is working for you. It just happens and it's perfect. And there's a, a mutual orgasm. And that's just not what's, what actually happens. <laughs> really? Yeah. And so funny enough, about 75% of college women think that they should have an orgasm from penetration alone, but the real number is like pretty reverse. It only 4% of women, people with clitorises or vulvas can actually have an orgasm most reliably through um, penis stimulation. Four, 4%? 4%, that's their most reliable route for orgasm. Wow. The rest need clitoral stimulation. That's not yeah. necessarily achieved through penis and vagina intercourse. Right, not at all. It can be through oral sex or um, manual sex. It can be rubbing the clit during intercourse, but the penis is not necessary, which is why often when two women have sex together, they're way more orgasmic than when heterosexual man and woman have sex together. So I heard you say that people identifying as women or people with vulvas, uh, vaginas will come in most commonly and say that they're having trouble with orgasm. Yeah. And it's funny because oftentimes they're just thinking that they're having trouble repeating what happens in movies when sometimes they really can reliably orgasm through masturbation. So it's all about encouraging them like, okay, well, what might work in masturbation? Now let's try that out with partnered sex. How does that, well, I'll just share that I've had experiences with dating partners who were really threatened by yeah. that. They had traditional um, notions like, like media notions of how they were I was supposed to achieve pleasure and orgasm and they weren't at all interested in learning what worked for me, what I could do for myself, um, seemed really threatened by that. Yeah. Yeah. And it sucks. It sucks. But I feel like the false notion of having this like orgasmic sex through intercourse doesn't work for men or women because that puts so much pressure on penis size and it puts so much pressure on like, you have to thrust the right way and have to go all night and all of that. And um, so it puts pressure on men and women and it really puts masculinity into question. Well, I'm wondering about the college age group of folks yeah. um, and just what, other influences, whether that's um, so-called hookup culture or um, drinking, mm -hmm. uh, other substances that can come into play. Um, 
expectations, like what some of those pressures are on college age men and women mm -hmm. um, around sex. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm thinking back to my college time and thinking like there's this weird vortex of like, oh my gosh, I'm not cool enough. I'm not having as much sex as other people or doing like as wild of things. But then at least for women, there's a dual side of like, there's slut shaming for having too much sex. But then there's also like, you should be doing all these crazy things. And the focus isn't again on necessarily pleasure. And it's interesting, like even the term hookup, like the term hookup can be so vague. It can be like, we made out to like, you know, we had like a threesome with doggy style, you know, who knows what that means. And like that often can make men be able to round up their numbers and women round down their numbers because of slut shaming. I think the question that always just comes up is like, am I normal? Am I normal? Am I, am I okay? And there's so many people in college that I feel like are, are worried that they're not having enough sex and they're alone in that. If you're listening to this and you're not having sex in college, you are not alone. And if you're in college and you're having sex and you're having lots of hookups, you're not alone. And um, the only thing that I think is healthy from like a psychological lens is like whether you feel good about yourself and about your body and pleasure. Which I mean, ooh, that's there's a lot in there. Good yeah. about yourself and your body and your pleasure. <laughs> yeah. And that's even like another one of my talking points is like, trying to take achievement out of the equation. And so knowing that like respecting your body, but like the idea that you have to be at this like wonderful self-actualized place of like loving your body is so far from real most people's lives. I'm not there yet. It's just more about trying to engage in, in like self-compassion with yourself, knowing that you're with partners that can as much as possible respect your boundaries and your needs and that you know how to respect your your boundaries and your needs. There's so much in what you're saying that I I know that we've both worked with students through the, you know, counseling and wellness center over the years who uh, like really struggled with boundaries and really okay. struggled with finding their voice and that that is whether it's about sex or about anything in yeah. our lives that that's such a journey to get to a place where um, we can really like speak up about our needs and our desires mm -hmm. and I certainly wasn't there at um, yeah I'm st like yeah I'm still working on that but it's gotten better over the years um, but I college was I don't know I was just in kind of in a haze most of the time and there I'd been sexually assaulted and that really messed with mm -hmm. my sense of myself and boundaries and just how many different I was drinking a lot there were just a lot of factors I felt kind of like broken um mm -hmm. I did feel a ton of shame um mm -hmm. and so yeah just all those things impacted my um, experience of my body and I really uh, I think that I was really probably having sex for other people. I wasn't right. really having sex for me. Yeah. And I think, 
you are so not alone in that. And I think that is true of myself too, you know, like focusing on, and I think it's hard not even include gender in this, Mm -hmm. um, but focusing on others' pleasure is like something I was socialized. Women were socialized from such, such a young age. And especially when in the case of sexual assault, like even if you state a boundary, it's not like the boundary will even be respected. And that's so, it's so tough and so hard to even talk about pleasure in the context of when pleasure and boundaries are totally taken away. Yeah. Yeah. Thankfully, there's so much healing that can come too. So we're not doomed if we've had those experiences. And again, they are so common. Mm -hmm. Um, One in four women will be sexually assaulted. um, I think by the time they're done with college kind of a thing. So yeah. What does this look like for men? Like, what are men social? You talked about taking achievement yes. out of it, right? Yeah. What are men socialized into? Yeah. No, that's that's a great question. So socialized into what penis size says about them, and so socialized in the idea of like having their partner have an orgasm as a reflection of their own achievement versus like just the pleasure of watching your partner have an orgasm. And it's funny also when thinking about drinking, like drinking so much is a is impactful for younger men with erectile dysfunction, but premature ejaculation too is often coming from this idea of like, you need to have sex all night long and be like this sex rock star who is just like giving out orgasms like you know, you're giving out money <laughs> and that's a lot of pressure too. So pressure doesn't help. Pressure, pressure doesn't, doesn't help, help either, either yeah. person, regardless oh. of gender, but, um, yeah. but pressure is going to impact men differently than women in terms of feeling like they need to conquer, like each gender brings in so many um, imposed expectations so many imposed expectations and ones that are just not helpful to either this focus on penis size like really doesn't actually matter for female sexual partners of men but yet it's so strong and part of masculinity and even you think about um, gay male couples non-binary couples like gender has the opportunity to be different to have a different script, but sometimes our like cultural scripts and standards are still there, putting that pressure in for someone to be a dom and someone to be a sub or more masculine, more feminine. And yet I imagine that some folks in those non-traditional partnerships might have opportunities to like deconstruct that stuff more quickly than, than other folks. Yes. Yeah at least it's thrown in your face um, of like, okay, what does my gender mean to me? Or what does this relationship mean to me? Which is right now, a lot of focus of couples I'm seeing is couples who are practicing some form of non-monogamy and what that means for their family life and for their identity, for their overall sense of self, but like how to have a partnership that includes non-monogamy. And just, I think most people know what that means, but yeah, 
put it out there. So yeah, monogamy is traditionally like one partner is with one partner and they're exclusive emotionally, romantically, sexually. And um, non-monogamy might include that one or both partners has sex with other people, but potentially also has romantic relationships with other people. So might even have a, you know, four people who are in a committed relationship with each other or two people who have a separate boyfriend or girlfriend or partner, and they might not all be in a relationship together. Just kind of the idea of relationship anarchy, that it can look a lot of different ways. Wow. I'm thinking just how complicated it is with uh, even another person. And then you add in all these layers, and I'm sure there are lots of opportunities that come with that as well, but just how many dynamics then. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, even day-to-day dynamics that come up of like, okay, well, if I'm babysitting the kids while you're going and having sex with someone else, like, when are you going to do that for me? And just, I mean, circling back to college students, like people are busy already. So scheduling is actually more common to talk about it in therapy than you might think. (laughs) That's interesting. Yeah. Um, I wonder, I don't, I can't speak to this from a research perspective, but I wonder if the non-monogamy of many college students isn't the kind of committed polyamory that you're describing, Mm -hmm. but is, yeah, more about having like a number of partners involved in your life in a way where you're not really committed um, Mm -hmm. to any of them and that kind of thing. Yeah. More back to hookup culture. Yeah. Or serial monogamy where I'm with one person and then that ends and I'm with another. Right, right, right. Yeah. And I think a lot of that, at least from clients that are in college, a lot of that is, again, about time and scheduling and about, you know, like students are busy. And it's really hard if you think about like studying and then maybe working out or doing other things to take care of yourself. Um, In general, I notice a lot of college students having trouble with just relationships and making time for socializing, especially with the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. It is. That's made it even harder. So what about the relationship between mental health and sexual behavior Mm -hmm. or sexual Mm -hmm. experience? Yeah. So that's a great, great question. And um, I'll give like a little anecdote from my work is, you know, someone came in and they were like, hey, I'm looking to work on having low sexual desire. Like that was like the said presenting concern. But, um, you know, when I got to talk with her more, just had a breakup, school is really stressful, like might not get an internship, just so many other life factors, factors from home life, from her parents and roommates and things like that. And And when you peel back the layers, she initially came in for a sexual concern, but like with all of us, we are people who have sex. And so it's important to take a look at the whole person. And we talked about how, because she was so anxious, you know, her chest was tight. She was always thinking about the future, worrying. It was hard for her to stay in the present moment. So much of that impacts sex, being able to enjoy the present moment, be in your body to experience pleasure. That's about mindfulness, but that has so many implications for sex. So 
a lot of times, you know, it's about peeling back all of the person's layers, looking at the person holistically and finding how to decrease stress in their life and increase pleasure. And when I say pleasure, I don't just mean sexual pleasure, just relationships, friendships, gardening, working out, whatever makes that person happy. Because it all kind of goes together in my experience. So it sounds like stress, um, anxiety, being caught up in our in our heads or being somewhere else, um, mm-hmm. the thinking about how we look uh, yeah. can be another really, yeah. I was thinking, where does body image kind of oh, fit yeah. in with that? Yeah, so much. Because it's so impactful in that like you can't be thinking about like is this taking too long do i look fat you know is my stomach rolling over whatever questions we all have during sex like that does get in the way of our pleasure and there's even a term for that it's called spectatoring like meaning you're kind of watching yourself from the outside yeah like you're watching yourself having a performance versus being the performer. Gosh, that seems so embedded in our culture yeah. now. And, yeah. and yes, women get it hard, but I feel like social media culture too, like we're on some level, we're always trying to perform or present an image that's carefully cultivated and scrutinized. Like, I mean, that starts in middle school, if not earlier Yeah. now, like thinking about how are people perceiving me? Yes. Yeah. Is this taking too long? Am I not having the right type of orgasm? Do they think my vulva, my penis looks good? It's, it's so much judgment versus just being there. It's like the, the shot of like the Instagram selfie versus the true selfie. I mean, what helps? So maybe we're, we're all normal because we're all human and this is all just part of a spectrum of human sexual behavior and desire and like it can change throughout our lives and based on life circumstances and all these different factors, partners. But like, how do you begin to help someone who has sexual concerns? You said you look at all these layers and you kind of look at what else is going on in their lives, but how does that actually translate into something more positive? Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. Hard conversations are hard for a reason. It can be uncomfortable to reach out to someone who is showing signs of distress, especially if they are a friend, family member, or student. Cognito could help you build the confidence to have these hard conversations. Cognito is a 30-minute online training simulation course provided by the CWC to help you notice signs of distress and appear, learn how to talk about these signs, practice sharing your concerns, and motivate them to seek help. Visit counseling.ufl.edu forward slash cognito to learn more and get started. Caring starts with you. Yeah, yeah. So there's two big pieces and I'm going to start talking about the first, but don't let me forget the second. Okay. <laughs> um, so the first is just sex education and that, you know, kind of what we did talk about, we're comparing ourselves to these realities that really don't actually exist and are harmful and get us messed up and in our heads and thinking we should be having sex differently. So 
Honestly, working with sexual concerns, a lot of my job is just providing scientific, accurate sex education, like teaching versus being a therapist, busting myths, you know. And then the second piece is mindfulness. So that includes there's specific, you know, sex therapy practices that couples can do. That's called sensate focus. But it really is like enjoying the small things in your body. And it starts in non-sexual ways. So just like enjoying the temperature in the room, enjoying what it feels like to, you know, like caress your own head, to, you know, rub your arm and to, to be with your body, to enjoy the sensations that your body naturally has. And we have to remind ourselves of that sometimes. And so that can, you know, those exercises can rev up to include like, you know, touching your genitals and eventually having orgasm. But it's really not about the achievement. It's the idea the journey is the destination. So enjoying each moment along the way with yourself or with a partner. I am married now. Tomorrow's our fourth um, anniversary of marriage. And I just think back, like I have that safety in my marriage now. I have that safety with my partner. Mm -hmm. But so many of the sexual partners that I had prior to getting married, I don't know that I could have begun to have those experiences or those conversations about what I needed. I mean, this isn't, this conversation isn't about me, but that I was just thinking like, where was I in college? Like I was nowhere near that yeah. kind of self-advocacy. Yeah. And no, none of us are, I mean, some of us are maybe, but most of us aren't. And I think that's why I say with yourself or with a partner, but really to even make that more clear, like with yourself first just enjoying your own body masturbation first. And then from there, you can translate it to a partner, but again, to a partner that you feel comfortable with. And that might not be the first or second or third, you know? That makes a lot of sense. Start with you. Yeah, to start with you for sure, which is kind of hard to even think about because to start with you, you have to first feel like you're deserving of pleasure and you're worthy of pleasure which a lot of us don't. Pleasure isn't taught in sex ed, especially not taught to women, especially not taught with people with fat bodies, people who are differently abled, people who are non-binary, people who are intersex. So the idea of being worthy of your own pleasure is radical and it's hard. I mean, that just runs so deep. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine that that's where working with a therapist can be also so helpful is to unpack where that sense of unworthiness comes from yes. and how to start building that in. And yes. honestly, like if there are folks listening who haven't ever um, talked to a counselor before for yourself, like receiving that kind of care and concern and kindness from a counselor can actually be like the first time maybe you've 
been treated as being really worthy. Yeah. Like, it can set the stage for how, gosh, my, when I sit with my counselor, I do feel good. I do feel yeah. deserving. And how can I bring more of that to myself? Mm-hmm. Yes. I think the first time a lot of people have felt unconditionally worthy of love. It's not about, you know, the test grades you get or about the, how many times you call. It's just, you are worthy. Your body is worthy. And that is life-changing. Where were you with all of this when you were in college, Hannah? Yeah, that's a good question. I feel like it is just, it's helpful to start beforehand. And I, in a lot of ways, was really lucky because I, I think like as a therapist, I think about the attachment lens and as like a young child baby, I felt securely attached, you know, like really good caregivers, parents, and and I was really lucky in that way. And so for um, people that don't know like what that attachment, yeah, yeah just briefly. Yeah. yeah, I just felt like my needs were taken care of. My mom like could mirror my emotions and comfort me as a young child when I was crying, like just stable parent who was there and with, with unconditional love. And that helps teach, so goes the theory, that helps teach us that more broadly, like we can trust the world to care about us. Yes. Yes. And that is huge, Sarah, because I did trust the world to care, not necessarily men, but I, and I'll get into that, but I trusted myself to care about my body. And I think so in middle school, things got rockier because braces and acne and weight stuff and just like teenager, like me not feeling like I fit in, um, not feeling like I was attractive and therefore not feeling necessarily sexually desirable by men. But I, so that was like one narrative of feeling like because of media and how I looked that like I wasn't necessarily worthy of a partner or from men in that way but then this other half of like older male relatives like cousins who taught me about pleasure and taught me about like well you know we're not in your situation but we think this is how girls touch themselves (laughs) and so they were my first source of like sex education and like what is masturbation And from there, I like, I took, you know, I took the exercises home and practiced (laughs) and I learned how to trust my body and what my body did, but there was confusion because like the vast majority of people with vulvas, I have orgasms through the clitoris, like through clitoral stimulation. And then I remember the confusion of watching movies and watching other like music videos and like orgasm just happened through penetration. And so I know that is a lot of, lot, that's very confusing for a lot of people who go from masturbating to having sex and they're like, wait, what, what's going on? And in college, I was also lucky in that I was properly educated. I feel like I can think so much of my, my sex education and my like you know, the fact that I'm a therapist now to Lori Mintz, Dr. Lori Mintz, who teaches a psychology of human sexuality at UF. And I learned all the myths out there that I learned about clitoracy. So literacy about the clitoris, learned about 
you know, about advocating for pleasure. So I think in college, I was lucky, but with not without my struggles from my body image, from psoriasis, like a skin disorder that made me feel self-conscious. And um, also just, I think, being a people pleaser and still like sometimes knowing the facts about what my pleasure looks like, but it can still be hard to advocate for yourself. So that was definitely a learning curve for me. Yeah, that's, you mentioned so many things along the way that stand out and also are, I I feel like by the time people come into counseling about sexual concerns, like a lot has probably happened Mm -hmm. or a lot has accumulated around sex Mm -hmm. um what it means how it feels yeah like in a lot of ways you sound pretty darn lucky and privileged Mm -hmm. yeah i am but enough um struggle to like also be able to relate and empathize and like you're you're in the same water that everyone else is swimming in too with with the conditioning yeah for sure but there certainly were some factors that weren't present in my life that are can be really hard sexually for people. Like I think a big one that comes up with sexuality is religion. And I grew up Jewish, am Jewish, but like a open-minded idea and that didn't say that sex was had to be a certain way necessarily. What sex wasn't necessarily overtly talked about, which is its own level of shame and taboo, but I know many peers growing up with more restrictive religion experienced a lot of shame for gender, for sexuality, for premarital sex, and and what that means for them. And I, you know, I'm thinking of a client who had a strict religious upbringing with also strict religious parents, and she experiences vaginismus, which is kind of when the vagina tightens up. And this is kind of known to be a more psychological concern versus a physiological concern. And we have unpacked how just shame around sex, shame around sex, even when she so desperately wants to not have shame around sex, it still is present from religion and from her parents. Yes, that's that's certainly a layer for a lot of people. It It was for me for many years too. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you get, it sounds like you got to college with a, like you still had a close relationship with yourself and your body and your own pleasure, even though um, that gets complicated when we start to think about involving others or how does that reconcile with the messages in, um, in the media about sexuality. Um, I'm wondering kind of, especially since you are talking about the value of education and knowing yourself and stuff, just how, just how it unfolded for you from there. Yeah. Yeah. I have a lot to say on this too. So growing up, uh, when I say growing up in high school, I didn't talk with friends about masturbation and And it was interesting because, you know, I knew how I masturbated, but I had the question of like, am I normal? So I masturbate with clitoral stimulation. And I now know that 
most, the vast majority of people with vulvas need clitoral stimulation. But I remember going through this whole process of like, I'm the only one that needs this clitoral stimulation. Like what's wrong with me? Why, why do I need this? And other people can just have an orgasm from penetration. And also another you know, fun fact about me is I am a one and done orgasm person. I don't have multiple orgasms. And then you see in movies or see in porn, it's just like orgasms stack back to back to back. And I had the question of what was wrong with me. Um, but knowing, you know, from taking the psychology of human sexuality with Dr. Mintz, I realized that one, I was normal and having, having an anxiety about whether I was normal, even there's a term for it, normality, anxiety. And I, from there was like, no, this, this actually I'm in the vast majority. So it helped me be able to advocate for my needs and not feel crazy for wanting clitoral stimulation. And like a little side note, even if you like something that isn't the vast majority, it's still worthy. You're still worthy of pleasure, but it did certainly help to know that what I was wanting and needing was something shared by others. And it's not just about clitoral stimulation or clitoracy. I, we learned um, about how many pictures of vulvas are digitally altered. They're hairless and they're what my friends and I now call paninis, which means they're like, you know, little and cute and there's just nothing overhanging or overflowing in the vulva. But I have what we call a lettuce sandwich, which there's a little, there's a little more, you know, lip <laughs> floppiness hanging out. And we don't really see diversity in vulvas really or in penises in pornography or in um, media. And so I was again, wondering, am I normal? Is my vulva normal? And in that class, we saw all sorts of non-digitally altered photographs. And that was really liberating because I was like, oh, you know, I'm just, you know, one of those other people that has one of the more like flowery vulvas. And it took it to a really cool, positive place for me. But um, I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't taken the class necessarily. And I wouldn't have known that without that education. So I think education is just so, so valuable. It's like one of our strongest tools to combat shame. Yeah. And obviously yeah. misinformation that breeds shame. Yeah. And I think the other part about shame is sharing it with others. I was really lucky in college that I took the class with a couple of really good friends and we could share about our own experiences. And again, that's a place where I'm privileged. But my hope is maybe that at least by even listening to this podcast, you might feel some connection and feel like you have less shame. How do you think pornography? I know that women watch pornography too, but uh, my understanding is that it's really hard to find a college age male who doesn't watch pornography. It's mm -hmm. um, true. And I don't know that that would be quite the same for, for women. How does growing up on pornography with now with the um, availability of it on the internet, mm -hmm. how does that impact like men's sexual development by the time yeah. they get to college? Yeah, I could be totally wrong in this statistic, but I remember my partner saying average age of first exposure was like seven or eight to pornography. So that certainly has the ability to shape 
ideas about sex. And I think a lot of people are getting sex education from porn. And so from the male side, um, there's an idea of, again, like such a huge focus on penis size and lasting a long time. And there's no focus on communication, communication for consent, communication for pleasure. Also, just it's not real life. If porn was real, people would never actually have their houses fixed or never actually order a pizza and then eat the pizza. Porn is just, it's unrealistic and it's fantasy. And it's, we have to acknowledge that that fantasy is different than everyday life. So again, if we're comparing our own sex life to porn, it's like comparing a true selfie to an Instagram selfie. I like what you said about the, there's no conversation about consent or about like pleasure. Um, is this working for you? <laughs> Even just as a basic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I also think it doesn't, um, it doesn't really accurately depict it's a performance, right? It's a performance. So it doesn't accurately, like it's easy for women to fake orgasms. And so it doesn't depict how genuine the the woman's pleasure is. Yeah. And it doesn't show parts about life, like, you know, sneezing during sex. Or farting or farting, queefing, like any of the things that can happen. Like, yeah. 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 And it, so it doesn't really teach people how to be human. And I've talked vulnerable, like it's vulnerable. Sex is vulnerable. Yeah. Yes. Sorry yeah. to cut you off, but no, you're good. I have talked to like male friends, like heterosexual and gay who also, it can, from their perspectives and again, not my own, but it can teach them like that somebody's body is more of an object. And it kind of is hard to sometimes remember that that person is a whole person. And that's, um, so that's confusing. If um, porn doesn't need any communication, it doesn't need any intimacy or vulnerability, but then sex really does. Like you're naked in front of this person who you sometimes you know, and sometimes you don't, and that's vulnerable. Yeah, it leaves out all of that. Yeah, all of that. Like the after cuddle or, you know, the, before leading up to it and it's interesting you mentioned faking orgasm because that's you know the majority of of women have also faked an orgasm too and it's really easy to do and especially if you think you should be having the orgasm through penetration then it's shameful not to not to and so you want to fake so I think erotica and places where we can like connect with our sexual pleasure is wonderful, but it's hard when it's, it's thought that pornography is reality because it's not. There's a Ted talk that I often will recommend called the great porn experiment. That's easy to find on YouTube. Um, that has some of the, the first widespread studies done on the impact of, um, a lot of pornography on um, mental health and mm-hmm. sexual functioning. And it's, I feel like if you're, um, yeah, if you're growing up in today's digital era, it's, it's important to know what, um, what can happen and in their unintended consequences. 
but uh, just how much it can impact like how comfortable you are talking to other people and getting to know them. And like you're saying, all the stuff that goes into having a real sexual partner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at risk of sounding like a boomer, like boomer generation, I do feel like like porn is porn is certainly easier than a relationship. It is. It's accessible. You can get it on your phone. It's fun. You get a quick dopamine fix. It's easier, um, but it's not necessarily more fulfilling. In fact, it can it can be the opposite. And porn is also something that's really controversial in like the sex therapy world. And I I think it's important to note that it is nuanced. And there's also wonderful feminist pornographers out there. And so, yeah, and I, yeah, I think it, it, it's important to say it's not, um, I think like anything it can be used or like most things it could be used as a tool or as a crutch and yeah, yes. yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. Yes. And it, it can be integrated into a healthy sex life mm-hmm. and you might have to be more selective about what that is that you're watching and that kind of thing. But, yeah. uh, but it can be, it just um, so often isn't. Yeah. And it's hard to expect it to not be a crutch when people aren't getting sex education from anywhere else. So most people get sex education from friends or media or, and that includes porn, not getting it from school, not getting it from their parents. So how are people supposed to know what the heck is actually supposed to happen if if porn is the example. So you really can't blame anyone for using it, quote unquote, as a crutch. It's just, it's what's out there. And I remember like, you know, from, from my family members, when I was told about like male masturbation, I pictured it in my mind of like this, like twisting motion, like wringing out a towel and this like yellow goop would eventually come out. Um, and I wish you could like see my hands to like, I'm doing the hand motion (laughs) and it's really to say, like, I think movies and porn showed me that that's like not actually what happens, but that's also porn isn't necessarily what happens either. You know? Mm, mm, Yeah. People are just figuring it out on their own without much guidance, which is hard. You know, we've covered a lot today and I think I'm wondering if you think about the college students that you have worked with and continue to work with, what are a few things that you would want people to come away with after listening to us today? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the main thing would be that you are normal and that you're normal for wondering if you're normal. You are. And I think some of these basic facts that we've talked about today about penis size doesn't really matter. And that um, orgasms for women mostly happen with clitoral stimulation. I think some of those basic facts are, are something I'd want people to walk away with, as well as a reminder about achievement is kind of the opposite of pleasure. And that it's so easy to get caught up in having sex the way we think we should or about having this kind of orgasm or look a certain way or this kind of partner. And um, 
I just encourage people to check in with themselves, with their bodies and notice what feels good. You know, it sounds so simple, but it's not easy. It's simple, so hard, but yeah, so hard. So hard. Yeah. Th- those are beautiful takeaways. Good reminders. Uh, good reminders for me too. I, I wonder what resources or books or like somebody wanted to follow up on this conversation, um, what they could check out, um, if they might be able to locate you, that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, great question. For locating me, I'm, I'm seeing clients in Georgia right now. So if you are in Georgia for individuals or couples, feel free to contact me. But as far as resources, so many, and I'm definitely going to point you to Dr. Mintz at UF. Um, she wrote the book, Becoming Cliterate, which has so much scientific information, as well as like her own experience as a sex therapist. Another really great book is Come As You Are. And that is, you know, by another um, sex educator. And then um, Ian Kerner wrote the book, She Comes First. And that's about men who have sex with women, about kind of how to pleasure them and um, talks about penis size, anxiety, things like that. And there's tons of just other really good blogs and Instagrams and TikToks. I'm getting into the TikTok world. But Justin Miller's Instagram um, has some really good information and Psychology Today blogs. And maybe I already said that, but check okay. them out. Yeah, we'll yeah. link and we'll link to all these in the show notes too, but it can be helpful to just hear it from you. Um, and then what would someone like, if you want to go to counseling about your sexual concerns, like what do you look for in a therapist? Because mm-hmm. like you mentioned the term sex therapist, but that's a specific thing and you right. may not be able to find a sex therapist. Right, right. And I, so therapy is all about, you know, what speaking the unspeakable. And that's from Dr. Mintz. Those are her words. And so you'd be surprised many, many therapists who aren't quote unquote sex therapists might be comfortable talking about sex, but also just like the rest of us, therapists grow up in a sex negative society. So a lot of therapists might not be comfortable talking about sex. So I would encourage you with a therapist and You can book free initial consultations with most therapists, or if you're at a college counseling center, you can ask for someone who is sex positive, but feeling it out, feeling it out as far as who you would feel comfortable talking about something intimate and vulnerable with, because at the end of the day, that's what you care about is being able to reduce some of the shame and, and talk about your sexual self. That's really helpful. Thank you so much for joining today, Hannah. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Sarah. It's great to connect with you. And as always, great to talk about sex. Thanks for listening. You can find CWC Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. Please leave us a rating and review us. Email us at cwc-talks at ufl.edu with your feedback and suggestions for future episodes. Show notes, resources, and more can be found at counseling.ufl.edu slash cwctalks.